Good afternoon. I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. And this is Talking About California, today concluding our series Observing Hispanic Heritage Month. We've been discussing the reemergence this summer of the Black Lives Matter movement, though with an emphasis on the Latino perspective. Today, we'd like to continue this focus on the implications of the movement, the relationship between the Latino community and the police, in particular for Latino youth. And our guest uh, this afternoon is Professor Alvaro Huerta. He's an associate professor in urban and regional planning and ethnic and women's studies at California State Polytechnic University, Pomona. Among other publications, he's the author of the books Reframing the Latino Immigration Debate Towards a Humanistic Paradigm, 2013, and Defending Latina, Latino Immigrant Communities, The Xenophobic Era of Trump and Beyond, 2019. And Professor Huerta holds a PhD in city and regional planning from the University of California at Berkeley, and also an MA in urban planning and a BA in history from UCLA. Welcome, Professor Huerta. Great to have you here today. Thank you. I appreciate both of you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. So can we call you Alvaro? Yes, it's okay? Okay, thank you. Alvaro, um, we've listened to you talk about growing up in Los Angeles and how this shaped your life. You were born in the U.S., but spent your first four years in Tijuana, Baja California, Mexico, and over 10 years in the Ramona Gardens Public Housing Project in East Los Angeles. Can you talk uh, about this, please? Yes, thank you. Uh I think for a lot of us, the way we the way we view the world and the way we see things is a lot has to do with the way we grew up. Um, and for me, I'm a son of immigrants. Uh, there's uh, come from a big family from Michoacan, so there's uh, eight siblings. And I have ten uncles and aunts, and I have about a hundred first cousins. Uh, so my mother, when she conceived me, we. They were living in Tijuana, Baja California, and and she was a domestic worker. So she was she had a, a passport. It was I thought it was a work permit, but it's a passport. And so she decided uh, to have me here in the United States so that I could become a citizen, and then the family can migrate. Uh, so she was very she was a visionary that way. So I was delivered in in um, in Sacramento, even though she worked in San Diego cleaning houses. So that immigrant experience kind of shaped the way I, I see the world. Uh, so for me, being born here in Sacramento, but my mother returned back like 40 days later to, to Tijuana, and I lived there for four years, and then we came back. So for a lot of racists and Republicans, I'm what they call an anchor baby. Uh, and for me, I, the, way, the way I was conceived and the way I was born here, I don't see it as a problem. Um, being of, of Mexican origin and indigenous, I, this is our land. We've been, we were here first. So I don't see myself as invading or anything of that nature. Alvaro, sometimes we hear this uh, idea that the, the frontier is crossing us. Right. And we crossing the frontier, right? Because we don't know where the territory ends. Right. And, and I see it like Bolivar. I don't see America as the United States. I see America as a continent. Uh, and, and we've always been migrating, uh, every, every people, uh, no matter what. 
So this is this is natural. This is just like birds and, and other animals migrate. Uh, so for me, when I talk about immigration and when I when I teach about immigration or when I hear policies against immigrants, it's not just an academic um, problem that I studied at UCLA and UC Berkeley, but it's also a personal one. Uh, and, and knowing how hard my mother worked, uh, knowing that you know she didn't speak the language and the obstacles that, that she experienced. Uh, and then growing up in, in Mona Garden housing projects and, and the projects and public housing projects are built by the United States. They're, so the United States, the government is responsible for them. It's not the people, uh, but the fact of the matter is there's so much violence, so much poverty, so much despair. And I experienced all that. It kind of shaped the way I see the world also. Uh, so when I look at people that are, are low income or they're experiencing violence, I don't blame them. I, I can empathize with them and, and I try to try to put myself in their shoes because I was there too. So this, this my own personal upbringing gets, just, just gives me a unique experience, even among other, other Latino professors that might have grown up middle class or might have gone to parochial schools and given them that edge. Uh, for me, there was no edge in that regard. Alvaro, uh, we are in here in Mendocino County, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So we are a very rural area. Could you a little bit describe for us how this project looks? I know it has the hazard name also, nickname. So could you mm -hmm. could you describe it for us? Because we live in the forest, and so it's, <laughs> for some people it will be hard uh, to uh, grasp the meaning of growing up in East Los Angeles. Right. During the, the 1930s, when, when FDR was, was president, uh, he started, he started uh, public housing or, or started to the government intervene in, in housing, where all of a sudden now the government is competing against you know, private developers and, and developing housing. Uh, and one of the things that they did with the New Deal is, is create HUD, the housing authority, or at least something that, that evolved to that. Uh, where the government will build housing uh, for working class people. So this is this is where these public housing um, projects came about. And originally it was for white working class. Uh, and when there was African-Americans at the time that, that were being sent to these uh, public housing projects, they were segregated. Uh, so for many years uh, after the 1930s or during the 1930s, the United States, let's say about 50 years, more or less, 50, 60 years, they started to build public housing projects, you know, throughout the United States. Uh, in major cities like New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. And Los Angeles had their own housing authority. So what it is, is, is just the, the apartments, but built and operated by the government. Uh, so what, what the problem with the problem with the United States and the government at the federal level and then at the local level is when they build these, these public housing projects, they did so in a way that there was a, a criteria where you, you had like a concentration of poverty. And there weren't opportunities for, for these residents to work or to seek employment. And in some of them, in some of the housing projects, if you had a father in the household, you couldn't qualify. Uh, so they... And if the father would visit, then it would be a crime and they'll be evicted. So you see that how the government shaped and, and concentrated uh, people 
in this case, black and brown people over time, because white, the white residents fled the, the, these housing projects, it created conditions where there's a high concentration of poverty, you know, high unemployment, uh, and then you start to see you overcrowding, uh, and then all of these factors leading to crime, uh, violence, you know, drugs, and, and so on and so forth. Super surveillance, uh, where they have cameras, where you can't trespass. Uh, so really, the, the residents are treated like if they're uh, in a prison. So we're actually prisoners and we're hostage to the government, constantly checking on us. And the ones, when you treat people that way, they start to behave that way as well. You write on a regular basis, the cops patrolled the projects and hunted uh, brown suspects. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and also about how you use the term state violence. Right, definitely. Well, let's, let's, let's take the case of East Los Angeles and, and the public housing projects, Ramona Gardens housing projects. Uh, so Big Hazard, that's the name of the gang. Uh, so the gang dominated the projects. And now on TV, in the media, in, the, in Hollywood, we see that, that the residents are terrorized by the gangs. Uh, and that, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, when you're growing up in these environments, in elementary school, for example, you have a lot of friends because there's a lot of kids outside. Uh, and we all know each other and we all play with each other in, in, in baseball, basketball, you know, we, we play in teams and so on and so forth. And after, let's say in junior high, some of them may go into the gang and others like myself didn't. And, but we're friends and we know each other. So there's no problem because, hey, you know, our mothers know each other, their comadres, and, you know, so there's, there's that kinship. Now, we didn't, growing up, we didn't, give it, even though the, that gang was very notorious in, in East Los Angeles, uh, still to the present, being there, we, we felt safe. We didn't fear the gang itself. We, what we felt, the fear is more the, the police. So the police, the, the relationship between the police and the housing projects is more like an occupation force. It's, it's as if you're in Baghdad, if you're in Iraq. So the police, they come in, and everybody there, every brown person, every brown male and boy is a suspect. So let's say I'm hanging out with some guys that I grew up with uh, in elementary school. They're in a gang. I'm not. But according to the police, we're all the same. And we're treated the same. So there's always suspicious. And even when you go to the store, you're like, oh, you're stealing when you're not stealing. Or you're doing something because you, you have that label. Like all of a sudden now you're what they call like other eyes where you're, you're, you're different and you're less than and you're dangerous. But everybody's guilty by association because you live on the wrong side of the track. So there, there must be something wrong with you. You're, you're a criminal element. And that's how you're treated. So you're always treated by suspicion, by the state. Now, everybody talks about, well, mostly everybody talks about the gangs and gang violence, and, and they focus too much on this brown-on-brown brown violence or black-on-brown. Black in other words, like we're always fighting each other, we're killing each other. But until recently, the people that we really were afraid of were the police uh, because the way they treated us, the way they harassed us, the way they, they killed our, our, our friends, arrested them, they beat them up before they would take them to jail. Uh, or they'll just they'll beat them up, 
and they'll drop them off in another in a rival gang, and then they'll just leave. So that type of treatment, then you ask yourself, why would we trust them? Or when they want to come and talk to us, if something happened, why would we confide in them? So that if you don't understand that world, you don't understand the, the, the morality around it and why there's a, a deep suspicion against the police in, in, in the inner city that way. Just on uh, this idea that you're talking about hunting, uh, you say just like abject poverty, we experienced patrol cars and helicopters. Uh, these were omnipresent. It's probably difficult for, as you say, for people who haven't experienced this to imagine what it's like. So maybe uh, just a few more words about that. Yeah, this actually starts when we were kids. Um, we were, let's say you're, we were uh, 10 years old and we didn't have a place to play baseball or basketball. We did have near the gym, but that's the other side of the project. So one day we, we jumped the fence and we, we were playing at the elementary school. Uh, and when the police came and they arrived, uh, there was a helicopter it was like three patrol cars, and you're talking 10-year-old kids. We weren't stealing. We weren't doing anything. Uh, and they had us all on the ground with our hands up. So automatically, we're, we're already being targeted, or, and we're already being uh, looked at like if, if we're criminal elements. And obviously, if we didn't have permission to do that. We, we, sh we didn't belong there. But to the degree that they came down at that level was, was harsh and unnecessary and it, it already ingrains in our minds as like you know they're the enemy and they're out, they're out to get us by the time i got to high school you know i was teaching myself how to drive my, my sister gave me a 67 mustang and i was teaching myself how to drive and then i did a rolling stop and and the cop was following me and i didn't even know so by the time i went in my driveway they they pulled up pulled me over and the first thing they did they told me to get out and they pulled a gun on me, like literally like six feet away, you know, I had a gun in on my face, pointing at my face. And I wasn't even afraid, actually. I was like, I was angry that they pulled me over because I didn't do anything. But it's just that overreaction on their part and, and the constant fear or, or the violence or the threat of violence that we, we experienced from them. Also, you know, by the time I got it to the 12th grade, for example, I was preparing to go to the university. I, in 1985, as a 17-year-old, you know, I went to UCLA um, as a freshman. And preparing for that, the applications and everything, and, and taking pre-calculus, and you know, just the whole studying. You know, I, I just, during those times, I, I remember um, like listening to the cops and the helicopters and just always... It, it, it was like if you, you know, like if you were in the beach and there's seagulls, you, know, you just you, you just see the threat all constantly. Uh, if you watch the movie Boys in the Hood, Cuba Goody Jr. and um, and other other African American actors that are famous, Ice Ice Cube, they there's a scene similar to that. So that movie, for example, it's, there's a lot of stereotypes, but it's pretty accurate in terms of the way it is. Right, Alvaro. So growing up in this type of uh, situation, uh, I imagine also it changes your life when you leave that area and you go to a different place. And this is something we have heard from other people we have been interviewing in this series, how 
they were impacted to see how the others live, what, what, what was their life. So how was for you to do this transition to preparing to college here in the helicopters and all that, and then suddenly, you know, being in UCLA? Well, actually, the, by the time I got to UCLA, I already knew what racism was. Uh, with the police, you don't, you don't see it as racism growing up. It's more like you just have to be careful, watch out, they're coming for you. you know, it, you're just constantly worried. Uh, like the suspicion, not to say that there wasn't some of that with the gang members. I'm, I'm not going to be um, lying here. There was that also that element, but it wasn't it wasn't as as severe. Um, when I went as a seventh grader, I got bused to an all white school. Uh, Senator Kamala Harris talks about that she was she she was part of the busing. She was integrated, but she only went like a block. They only <laughs> sent her like a block away from her house where in the 1970s, there was this uh, busing integration program where they wanted to uh, take kids from the inner city and put them in where the suburbs where the white kids, so, so we integrate them and, and we avoid the segregation. So I was part of that program. So in, in the early 80s, we had to take a bus when I graduated elementary school. I think it was 1980, I forget the date. Uh, they sent us to a uh, all white school, junior high school. It's called Mount Gleason Junior High. It's a suburb in, in Los Angeles. And when we got there, the first thing that we did, as it is, I was kind of shocked because I had to wake up at six in the morning. <laughs> it took an hour to get there. But when we got there, the kids, the white kids started throwing rocks at our bus. Uh, so it was like Birmingham, Alabama. They started calling those wetbacks and, and beaners and roll riders. And I was shocked because I, I knew what violence was. And I knew what um, poverty was, but I didn't know what racism was. So all these names that they were calling us, I didn't, I didn't understand it. And I was like, "Beaner, you don't like beans, you know?" So it, to me, it was it, it just didn't make any sense. Uh, so that experience it kind of prepared me by the time I got to UCLA in terms of being being in front of a lot of white people. Not that that we didn't have white people in the project because all the teachers were white. For example, there was no Latino teachers. We didn't have any. But they were nice to us, so there was no, we didn't see them as racist. They had low expectations of us, but there was no racism that was overt that way. But luckily for me, I was a little different because I, I, was, I was gifted in math, and, and that allowed me to, to get into this program called Upper Bound at Occidental College. Uh, and during, um, when I was 15 and 16, I lived in the dorms and, at, at Upper Bound. Uh, so that, that experience allowed me for two summers to escape the violence and then get, get accustomed to the college life. Uh, so by the time I, I went to UCLA, I didn't experience that culture shock. I mean, we did get pulled over by the cops over there because there wasn't that many Chicanos back then at UCLA. We did get pulled over a few times, but um, right there I saw more of the class difference. So, like That was what kind of shocked me, the, the level of... of um, just the high level of income, but we're talking Beverly Hills, Bel Air, uh, and then and then also a lot of the Latinos and Latinas, a lot of the Latinos and Blacks that attended UCLA at the time, we're talking 1985, they were middle class and they were wealth, wealthy. And then you had a lot of people from Venezuela, Mexico that that came from the upper class. So there's also that class element too. So being poor, being from the projects, and being Mexican. Uh, UCLA was not an easy experience. Just to kind of finish up on these questions, 
I remember back to the uh, heyday of the the Black Panther Party, and, and they referred to the police as a military occupation force. Uh, um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, definitely. For black and brown people in the inner city, I know the Black Panthers were founded in Oakland in the, the mid-1960s. The relationship between the residents, in this case, especially males, black males, brown males, boys and men, it's not just men. It could be, you could be 15 years old and it's, it's, you're still seen as a threat. The relationship is, is more of, of, of the occupied and the occupier, uh, you know, the colonized and the colonizer, uh, and somebody coming from the outside to force order upon you through violence. And what's, to me, what's, what's shocking, that, especially with the media, mainstream media, that, that they'll never get, uh, let's say when, there's, when they killed Martin Luther King, when they killed, when they beat up Rodney King, uh, when they when they murdered George Floyd, there's riots, and then the police. The first thing the police, the governors, and they could be black governors and white governors. It doesn't matter the color of their skin. To tell you the truth, they're like we we want to establish order because they're rioting, they're looting, and all. What what they what they don't understand, they'll never understand because because they don't belong to that class, is order, by establishing order, order itself is violent. Like, the order that they're establishing is order that is based on violence against black and brown people. So that's what order represents for us, is chokeholds. Um, the United States has over 2 million prisoners more than any country in the entire world, like just like COVID uh, cases and deaths, and the majority of those being black and brown. And that's the problem. So for them, order to put, put down these riots, the, these rebellions, really what they're doing is, is establishing order, which the order in and of itself is violent towards toward black and brown people. And the police represents they're like instruments of violence of the state. And that's, that's the problem. And, and if, if you don't understand it, it's because your class blinds you. you. You don't understand it because your own class doesn't allow you to. Because you reflect back on your communities and you're like, well, you know, I grew up in the suburbs and the police were nice to us and, and so on and so forth. So you, you're blinded because you, you, you just don't understand or you don't want to understand. Yes, Alvaro, and that's something really difficult uh, because many times when we talk about these topics, there are many exactly this type of people that consider that what we are saying is something that is actually over the top or we are exaggerating. And uh, it's, it's difficult to define oneself through this violent upbringing. Nevertheless, it's the only thing that defines us at the same time. Right. So, yeah, thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, Loretto, uh, let me, one more uh, thing. So I, I'm assuming then that, uh, just to be clear, you're, you're not really 
thinking that the the problem is a few bad apples in the police department but a bigger question which uh i noticed in your writing was this idea of our own street code and our own uh, morality to survive i think this is very uh an important uh issue to kind of come to terms with um and uh historians have been dealing with it in various uh places but uh i was uh, very interesting to very interested to hear you talk about it in terms of the um now do you do you call it the barrio yes that's um, i'm okay with that yeah so what about those questions the bad apples and the uh ob the obverse which about uh how to survive right Yes, unfortunately, too many people, and this this goes for a lot of brown and black liberals and and, and mainstream uh, politicians that are black and brown. Uh, they 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 end up accepting this lie that the problem is that we we have some bad apples. We have to get rid of them, uh, and all they need is training. We need to have sensitivity training. We need to have diversity training, and that training will take care of it because. They're doing these bad things because they just don't understand. Uh, and then some of them, they're just bad people, and we just got to get rid of them. But they, they're looking at things at a very superficial level. Uh, and to me, it, it's, we have to look at the roots. So instead of, if, if we are going to go into this, this tree and the, the bad apples analogy, then really it is, it's the, the roots are the problem of it. So, and then the roots go back all the way back to slavery, you know, all the way back to the indigenous people being killed uh, and seen as savages, seen as less, less than, like, they're not, they're not seen as human beings. And that's part of the problem. So when you don't see somebody as a human being, then you can oppress them, you can take advantage of them, you can rape them, you can... You know, they're, they're not Christians, you know, they're not, they're heathens. They're, so that, that whole history is, is, it continues to the present. It's not the same in the sense that you don't see lynchings like you did, you know, over 100 years ago, but it manifests differently now. I mean, George Floyd was, that was a form of lynching, what they did to Mr. Floyd. Uh, and, and then some... Dummies talk about like he died for us. No, he didn't die for us. He was killed. He was murdered. He was taken from us. And, and no human being should should be treated that way, and, and tortured in that way. So that's the problem. To me, it we just have to eradicate and get rid of the police altogether. Uh, you know, part of it is people think, oh, if we just diversify the police, we just have black, more black and brown. That means that. And too often in, in, in the black and brown communities, when you have a black or brown police officer or cop, they'll, they'll beat you up more than the white cop. And that's part of the, that's part of the training because they want to show their, their partner that at the end of the day, that their gang color is blue. You know, they're part of the blue gang and, and they're, not part of, they're not part of that community. Uh, so you see the same thing with ICE. You know, there's a lot of Latinos in, in ICE and the immigration, the, the agents. Uh, and, or even the military, when we talk about the gays in the military, I'm against all that. I'm just against the military period because I'm against violence. 
So why, why do you want to integrate something that inherently is violent and is oppressive? So for me, the, the, we have to go back to, like, to get rid of these institutions and to, re, to rebuild institutions that are community-based, that, that come from the people and that protect the people. Uh, and that's, that's something that we need to, we need to um, strive for. Uh, and, and everybody has, unfortunately, right now, even with defund the police, everybody has a different definition of it. But for me, more than anything, is that we just have to eradicate any institution that's based on violence and that perpetuates violence. And that's what we're against. We're against the violence. When people say, oh, my, my dad's a cop, you're against my dad. Uh, no, I'm not saying that because I have students, you know, they, they want to be cops or their parents are cops. I'm not attacking the cops or the soldiers that, that went to Vietnam. I'm attacking the institutions that, that are established to maintain a certain order where black and brown people and indigenous people are the ones being oppressed, you know, to the present. And, and it's manifested this way. Now, there's also, when you live under those circumstances, within the ghetto, the barrio, in, in, in these inner cities, you there's order there. It's not the order that, that a white America is accustomed to or the middle-class order that black, black and brown people also belong to. There's, they have their own order to survive and they create their own morality. Uh, and that's something that to understand that you have to, you have to like, literally put your own morality aside. Like put what, if you grew up middle-class, like I said, you could be black or brown. It doesn't matter. If you grew up middle-class, mom and dad, white picket fence, a dog spot, 2.5 kids, and you see what's happening in the inner city, and if you impose your own order on them, then you're, you're never going to understand them. Why, why, th why certain things happen? Why don't they call the police? And if they do call the police, what ends up happening? Or why is it important not to snitch, you know, not to tell? Thank you, Alvaro. This is uh, Loreto Rojas with Cal Winslow, your host today. Uh, this is KZYX Mendocino Community Listener Supported Radio, and our guest this afternoon is Professor Alvaro Huerta, Associate Professor in Urban and Regional Planning, also in Ethnic and Women's Studies at California State Polytechnic University, Pomona. We've been talking about the police and the people, the brown people, Latino people. So, uh, Alvaro, one of the topics that fascinates me, it's this idea that we have created these societies where we have one discourse that is seen perhaps in the movies or in the media that chooses what, to, what stories to tell and how to present them. Then we have this other reality where actually authorities, as you have just been telling us, have created these areas where the brown people or black uh, poor people without it's not important what color you are but if you are poor you are sent to these areas um, 
and this creates these extreme um, ghettos and um, underserved uh, communities. And this is something we don't see only here in the United States. It's replicated all over. It seems to be that it's part of the capitalistic idea. Mm-hmm. The, the servers, you know, live in these areas and then they have to travel for long hours to go and serve the other people. And we are completely separated. You have a degree in this topic in urban and regional planning. So how during your uh, classes and studies, um, how you would like to see that change and how policy can actually affect this structure that seems to create so much violence? Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that's a great question, like the other ones. Uh, one of the things that, that I try to uh, impart on, on my students, they're not actually my students, they're students, they don't belong to me, but the students is, um, is for them to constantly question and to not accept things the way they are. Uh, even the idea of the ghetto or the barrio, uh, these things, we didn't, black and brown people didn't invent them. Uh, it's not something that, that we wanted, that we wanted. Uh, it's something that was imposed on us. So we have to re- really like question that. And even when I talk to students and, and others, I don't really, I'm not really interested if, if people agree or disagree with me. Uh, you know, that's not really my role. It's more is to question, why do we have ghettos in the first place? And where did they come from? And actually, they, they go back to Europe with, with Jews where, because of anti-Semitism, and they were discriminated and only allowed to live in these areas. And, and we know in America and throughout the world that wealth is, is passed down. That, that's why somebody uh, with a small intellect as Trump it can, can become uh, uh, rich, not as rich as he says he is, but rich, but because he inherited money from his father and so on and so forth. And that's the case also with poverty. It's not that there's a culture of poverty where poor people are lazy and dysfunctional and things of that nature. It's more than anything is that the system is set up in such a way that if you're poor, it's very, very almost impossible to get out of it because you go to poor schools uh, that don't prepare you for the university. And that only perpetuates that uh, because there's more liquor stores in our neighborhoods than, than not. Uh, because there's more guns there than not. So everything that, that we experience, it's, it's something that, that can be traced back to American policies. Um, for example, like urban renewal in the, in the 1900s, uh, the, the federal government, even before urban renewal, going back to this, the, the United States, get, the federal government getting into housing, uh, they, they created these maps in the, in the 1930s, 40s, where they, they were redlining. So the, the United States government, they created maps in the, in, the, in the cities where they said, okay, if you live in this area, it's high risk. And so right here where the black and brown people are going to live. And then over here, the suburbs, the, they're low risk. So, so you start to see like white flight. Because they're low risk, the houses are cheaper, the insurance is cheaper, and there's, there's incentives to go there. So we see that there's actually policies at, at the federal level that perpetuated and promoted segregation and the, and the concentration of poor people. Even FDR, every, every Democrat, I'm, I'm an independent for the record, 
But every Democrat, and I studied FD, FDR um, in college, being a, a, a history major, an undergrad, every, every Democrat is like, FDR is, is, the, is like the Lincoln of the Democrats, right? But when he was with the New Deal, with these programs where they were building bridges and roads, and they were segregated too. Or FDR put Japanese in camps. So a lot of the cities, the way they are, can be traced to policies and the way they were designed with white flight, with the building of freeways, expansion of the freeways with, with the suburbs, uh, expanding suburbs. Uh, and then what we see with the GI Bill, what most uh, European Americans or white Americans, you know, benefiting from that, where they were able to go to the university for the first time because they were their parents didn't go to college. So there was a lot of opportunities um, that the federal government allowed to create this, this caste system where whites benefited at the expense of black and brown people th throughout the 1900s. So uh, I wondered if we could uh, shift now to Black Lives Matter. And there are two points uh, I guess I want to ask you about to start off with. And one is, uh, uh, you emphasize this, but just for our listeners' sake, that you're, uh, you, you write that you're in solidarity with your Black brothers and sisters. But you also write that let's not forget about the um, countless Chicanos uh, killed. Could Could you... Tell us uh, how you how that fits into your take on uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, I think it's a, it's important. First and foremost, you could be white, you could be black, you could be Asian, Mexican, Salvadorian, all ethnic groups. We should all come together, and I think we have in supporting Black Lives Matter. What, one thing that brings me joy in the midst of all this horror is when you see these protests, you see a lot of white kids protesting in support of Black Lives Matter, a lot of Asian kids, a lot of Latino kids, uh, and so on and so forth. So for me, this is what's important, is, is, is for us to unite on our, what brings us together, and our diversity should be our strength. Um, when I say Black Lives Matter, I, I believe it. Uh, and I, always, I also say, and also, I'm not going to say and black brown lives matter because that, that's kind of kind of like copying or stealing from them. But it's more than anything. We shouldn't forget that that brown people are being killed by the police, too. Right. So it's not a but or yet because it, it does away with that. It's more and in Los Angeles, for example, uh, the Los Angeles Times. They showed they documented that more Latinos or Chicanos in this case, uh, were killed by the police than, than blacks in the last decade. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is because there's more Latinos. You know, Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles, the county were about 50% Latinos and Latinas. So you see that because there's more of us, you're, you're gonna see uh, higher numbers. But if you look at the media and at the nationwide, at the major CNN, MSNBC, they behave like if Latinos are not also are not being killed by the police as well. So the the problem that I see is that Latinos and Latinas were, were 
we continue to be marginalized. We're invisible when it comes to this issue of police abuse. And that's something that I, I don't accept and I don't believe in. And I want to push that narrative that we have to also recognize that, that brown people are being killed uh, at a high number disproportionately to, to the white population. And that also needs to be addressed. The last thing is that we have to get away in this country in seeing racism as a black and white thing, which it, it is not. It's always been viewed that way, and that is a false narrative, that racism is, is black and white dichotomy. So that's not, that's not how it works. Let's not forget the, uh, the countless Native Americans that were killed, uh, the Chinese that were excluded. There was a Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 on a particular group. You know, Japanese were put in camps during, during World War II. Uh, and today we see brown kids put in cages uh, by this, this administration. Uh, and to be fair, being that I'm an independent, let's not forget that Barack Obama uh, deported 2.7 million immigrants, the majority of them being Mexican. Uh, and, and of that, you know, the good, a good number of them being Central American. So for me, the, the question of Black Lives Matter is important. And just like Latinos and Latinas are in solidarity with Black, uh, our Black brothers and sisters, they should also be in solidarity with us. Uh, when it comes to these issues of, of brown kids being put in cages, for example, we need their support because we can't do it by ourselves. And, and we're, so what I'm asking for, and not, not like I'm not like begging or mother may I or please, it's not like that. It's more we need to support each other. It needs to be mutual support uh, because we experience, we, we have more in common in terms of the levels of, of oppression and violence against us that should unite us more. Uh, and, and unfortunately, the, the state has done a good job in dividing black and brown people by, by lying to black people that, that brown people are the enemy because they're taking your jobs. And that's why you have high unemployment. So I want to get away from all this division of black and brown, you know, black and white, white and black. We just have to unite, you know, based on our values and, and what brings us together. Which is which should be our you know our humanity, right? And also we have seen uh, some of that already happening with the large number of uh, demonstrations and demonstrators that are not uh, only black people but also many Latinos that have joined, many whites, and we also see uh, many white women standing in the front line just to protect the community, you know, and and present themselves against this uh, seemingly institutionalized uh, violence. So when we hear sometimes that um, in certain communities, people in charge says, we don't have problems with Latinos here. Uh, we are all integrated and there is no problems with Latinos. It seems to me that they don't understand also that we have created this code that you were describing of removing ourselves from the public arena in order not to call attention. Mm -hmm. So could you say something about that, how we Latinos can regain certain, um, what I want to say, coraje, perhaps, <laughs> to be brave, <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. or trust that these uh, things uh, can change 
and we can participate more freely and, and not feel, even now with the pandemic, when we hear public health authorities blaming also Latinos for being large families or this tendency to getting together. Oh, they have mm-hmm. a gathering is 30 people. You were just saying that you have a hundred cousins. Probably I have like 60. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we, we really actually, in the light of what you just described about what the government does, we actually rely on the social structure to survive and thrive. Right, right. So could you say something about this sort of blindness of the whites, but also the, the, the culture of the Latino and how to regain these social arena places, places of decisions? When it comes to Latinos and Latinos, we do, we do have to learn from African-Americans in, in to be more vocal, you know, to be more present. And actually, we, we, we do have a long history of that, too. Uh, you, you see with, uh, in 1970, there was uh, 20,000 Chicanos and Chicanas protesting the war in Vietnam. Uh, a, a famous LA Times uh, reporter, Ruben Salazar, was killed. Uh, and you do see there was protests when P. Wilson wanted wanted to pass this this law banning immigrants from getting public. Um, it was one eighty seven uh, in the nineties, uh, getting public benefits. So the, uh, there is a lot there. There's there's always been resistance. Uh, unfortunately for the Latinos and Latinas, uh, I I think a lot of it has to do with the the way the Catholic Church has trained us to be more obedient, to accept things the way they are, and you'll, you'll be rewarded in heaven. And then also we've been taught to be good boys and good girls, to listen to authority, don't question. I think there's just, there's just a lot of that. Uh, don't look people in the eye. You know, don't question authority. Mandu said, you know, like it's always like this respect. And but that's ingrained as to be good boys and good girls from the family, from the church, and not that all Latinos are Catholic, you know, from schools and so on and so forth. Uh, so we have to kind of, well, not kind of, we have to break away from that altogether. And we can still be respectful, we can still be who we are, but be loud and to be proud and not to, not to compromise when it comes to human rights. Uh, too often we, we worry too much about like a certain word, but we don't worry like about the act itself. Uh, like the Black Panthers, they, they, they refer to the cops as, as pigs. And people say, oh, you shouldn't call them that or they shouldn't be dealt with that. But when your brother is killed by the cop, I mean, what else are you going to refer to them? I mean, that's just part of, like I said, is if you don't understand that, you, if you don't experience that, you don't understand where it comes from. So a lot of times we try to add our own morality to something that that's based on our own class. So for me, when I see kids in cages, for example, I, I don't know how most Americans can sleep or accept that. Uh, and then I pose this to white Americans in particular. You know, if, if those if those um, if those kids were white Canadians in, in their northern border, what would what would you do? I mean, would there be an outcry? Uh, we see when black and brown people uh, have a high addiction to crack cocaine in the 80s or, or marijuana or heroin, it's not a problem in the American eye. It's, it's an inner city problem. But when white kids are, are dying 
and overdosing with, with opiates, then now it's, all of a sudden now it's a problem. You know? So we see the hypocrisy in the way that Americans operate. Uh, and I'm an American, and I was born here, so I can speak this way, you know, of a free speech, you know, First Amendment, right? But we, we just see, to me, what I want to teach others, especially, you know, brown people, is to be proud of who you are and to never forget who you are. Uh, don't drink the Kool-Aid if, if all of a sudden you're at the university and you feel you're superior to, to others that, that are workers like my parents. Or like they were when they were alive, uh, and also to use that privilege to defend them and to to speak without apologies and without fear. Uh, whatever privilege that we have, just being a citizen, for example, just being born here, it, it just gives me that privilege that, I mean, what can the orange man in the White House do to me? He can't deport me. I mean, if anything, deport me back to East LA, that's about it. <laughs> but so I use that privilege to speak out and, and demand that, I, you know, given my First Amendment rights to, to do so. So I'm trying to teach others to, 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 to do likewise. You know. You've mentioned class uh, a number of times in, in this interview, and that's obviously an important issue, and there are many aspects to it, work, uh, how work is organized. One of the things that's most striking about California is uh, what appears to be you know, if you were to travel from more or less north all the way south, is kind of a, a system of, of apartheid in terms of the workforce, that every place you go, you see mostly Latino people waiting on people, uh, cleaning up after people, um, building, and so forth. Is, is, is a word like apartheid uh, uh, useful at all, or, or there are other things that have happened to to Latinos in terms of the workforce uh, over time in history, which are very important and probably you know might be more important than the way I'm describing it now. Well, I think so. I think the apartheid is based, you know in this case looking at race and also class as well, um, and having this like servant class. Um, I mean, y'all talk about being like in, in rural California. You know, my father was uh, he, in the 1950s. He came here dur during the Bracero program, so the guest worker program, and also my grandfather and my uncles were they were working the fields um, as agricultural workers. And uh, even before they got here, they were sprayed with DDT by the, the American government as part of the processing uh, guidelines. Uh, and DDT, you know, causes cancer. Uh, so for a lot of Latinos, and in this case, you know, Mexicans, Mexican men uh, that, that do this type of work, just the nature of the work itself, it, it's almost impossible to, to get out of that. Uh, it, it's almost because it's more of a survival. Uh, and and uh, you end up, the cycle kind of repeats itself. So part of the, the apartheid aspect of it is a segregation where where they live in these camps or these communities where the schools are bad or there's not that upper mobility opportunity. Uh, and because there's a demand for it, there's a need for it, despite what, what Trump says and the Republicans say, they know. Uh, if anything, Americans are like, it's like a drug addiction. They're, they're addicted. They're like heroin addicts. You know, they're addicted to cheap labor. And this cheap labor in the Southwest is the Mexican 
and so we're being vilified, but at the same time, we're, we're, we're needed as a servant class. And as long as we maintain our status there and we don't demand more, then we're okay. Like, in other words, you stay in your, stay in your place. Uh, so that's something that, that I think is, 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 is important to, to demonstrate the hypocrisy in the way uh, Latinos and Latinas are treated even though we're vilified, but there's also a dependency, you know, on us. And then just talking a little bit, going back to this idea of, of the culture itself of the family. Uh, well, and I actually wrote a, a paper about this, is that the Mexicans are going to survive the pandemic because we're accustomed to, to suffering. We're accustomed to, uh, to this type of, of problem. It's not the first time and it won't be the last time. So if anybody can survive it, it will be us because we're already, it's, it's part of like our DNA in the sense, it, and the family itself becomes that safety unit, right? So if, if somebody is displaced, automatically they're with the grandma or the tia or the cousin, and, and it's already part of our culture. And this is not like a DNA thing where it's just the Mexicans. The Irish were like this in the 1800s. So were the Italians, so were the Jews. But it, unfortunately, in America, the, the more assimilated, Americanized you are, the more individualistic you become. Uh, uh, but so for the Europeans to identify with the, Mex the case of the Mexicans today, uh, European-Americans, they, they have to go back to their roots, too, and to see that, that there was a time where Irish you know, were the blacks, uh, were the Mexicans, in terms of they experienced racism, too. So did the Italians, you know, so, so the Jews. Not that, that we don't see anti-Semitism now with these white nationalists that Trump supports. Right. I'm from Chile, and um, unfortunately I grew up under the dictatorship of uh, the, we call it the civil and military dictatorship for 17 years. So that really um, forces you to never look at the government as an organization that are just going to help you, right? And you just turn to your family to look for support. So, but one of the things, we have just a few minutes left for this interview, uh, but I want you to talk briefly, if you can, about the issues also women. I know you also teach this, but I read the um, one of your articles about how your mother decided to build a house in, in Tijuana and how you were all in like not believing her very much. And uh, it's a very interesting piece. And it, it made me think about also how women have been deprived of their voices. And uh, even when many times many people will recognize the women are the ones that actually hold <clears throat> family together and provide for everybody and so on. So could you say something in the last few minutes about this yes definitely i mean going back to the italians and the irish like the, the role of the woman in this case the mother is, is sacred we see it also with uh, african-americans you know with you know the, the the role that they play you know for my mother she was um illiterate they, they didn't go to the, they didn't go to school when i say school they, we're talking elementary school uh, and she managed to, you know, send, you know, four her, of her eight kids to the, the best universities in the world. Uh, and also what, my brother, one of my, well, my older brother, he's a world 
renowned uh, artist Salomon Huerta. And it for me, it's it's it wasn't uh, my teacher or professor or any anything like that. I mean, they, they do play a role, but it's I think for for us, especially my brother Salomon and I, who, who accomplished a lot, um, given where we came from, it was more that. And I didn't re realize this till later. It was more that immigrant drive that my mother had, that allowed her to push forward, and and teach her kids that that they they um, instill a level of belief in their kids that they can they can do whatever they want without saying no to them in this un unconditional love uh, and the sacrifice that that they have to endure to to get where we're at today. Thank you very much for joining us. I have to say for both of us, I think this has been very interesting and informative and we expected, uh, of course, that it, uh, it, it would be. And uh, we know that uh, you're right in the middle of term, very busy. And so uh, for us and for our listeners, you know, thanks again. And we hope that we'll get to talk to you again sometime. And so, again, our, our thanks to you. This has been Talking About um, California, and we've been talking with Professor Alvaro Huerta, who is the Professor of Urban and Regional Planning and Ethnic and Women's Studies at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona. And this also concludes our uh, contribution to Hispanic Heritage Month. Hopefully, we'll be back soon. Hopefully, uh, this next year can be better than this one. And on a personal note, I think I can say for Loretto and myself that this, in our own small way, has, is, has been our contribution to the Black Lives Matter movement. This is uh, KZYX, Mendocino County Community Radio, and it's Loretta Rojas and myself, Cal Winslow, and we're now signing off. So uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Gracias. Bye-bye. Thanks, Alvaro. That was really wonderful. Thank you.